Thank you for listening to the Highlander Podcast, where we have conversations about the past, present, and future of the outdoor industry. Thanks to Utah State University's Outdoor Product Design and Development Program for making it possible and for training the future product leaders of the outdoor industry. Learn more about the program at opdd.usu.edu. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Outdoor Recreation Archive, a collaboration between OPDD and USU Special Collections to preserve the history and print materials of the people, products, and brands of the outdoor industry. Follow the archive at Outdoor Rec Archive on Instagram. The Highlander Podcast is sponsored by the Utah Outdoor Association, a business association focused on elevating Utah's outdoor industry through educational programming and events. Their membership consists of Utah's outdoor manufacturers, retailers, outfitters, and guides. Member benefits include networking opportunities, recruitment of talent, and brand promotion. More information about volunteering and membership is available at utahoutdoor.org. Elizabeth Goodspeed, a designer and the casual archivist, joins the history of gear to talk about how she incorporates archives into her process, archives as ingredients, and how designers can find better inspiration. Welcome back, everyone, to our History of Gear series. Uh, my name is Chase, and today um, joining me is Elizabeth Goodspeed, um, a designer. She's got experience in art direction, editorial, graphic design, the casual archivist, um, and now teacher. Just started at Parsons. Is that something you're doing? Been at Parsons for a year, but just starting at RISD. Okay. Well, teaching or have have experience now at at multiple institutions, which how's that feel? It's good. It's very it's uh, sort of um, it's an honor, but it's a little surreal because, you know, I still don't feel, you know, I guess the older you get, you realize you don't know anything. And I can't believe people think I'm in a position to be advising them. But I'm very thrilled that apparently they do. You know, sometimes I feel that same way working at a university. Why me? But. And there's there's something that I think we have to offer. I think you especially have a lot to offer when it comes to to teaching design. Absolutely. And it's it's especially fun to be at RISD, of course. I went to RISD. So it does have a real sort of full circle moment um to, you know, be in staff meetings next to someone who was once my professor and is now my colleague. I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey into design. Like when did you first realize that design was even a thing? <laughs> Great question. Um yeah, I have a sort of, I mean, most people I think who have an interesting perspective in design came from a multitude of um, interesting directions, but I I was not always someone who thought I would go into design. I was very much a sort of um, academic student, very much focused on the STEM fields, actually. Um, I originally wanted to be a doctor, so I was in a dual degree program at Brown University and Rhode Island School of Design. I was studying neuroscience at Brown and graphic design at RISD. But when I started, I really thought graphic design was just going to be sort of this fun minor. <laughs> um, and then sort of two things happened. One, I realized I was horrible at math and I hated programming. And that was a lot of the bulk of the day-to-day work um, I would need to do as a researcher, which is really sort of, if you're not going to either become a doctor or um, you know run your own lab, that sort of is, is where you end up as a junior. Um, and then I, I kind of fell in love with graphic design. Um, and I also think... Uh, Graphic design was really hard in a way that 
science hadn't been for me in a funny way. Science was, you know, you had to cram and you had to study, but it was very sort of predictable what you needed to do to be successful in some way. Whereas um, with design, you know, I, I really felt like it challenged me and um, made me sort of think about what it meant to make good work and, and be self-critical and reflective. And I had some great teachers and I sort of slowly started really enjoying um, being in this design program. So it was a five-year program. And, and by sort of the fifth year, I realized I definitely wanted to pursue design over science. Um, so I, I graduated and got an internship at a design studio called Pentagram in New York. I worked there for um, three years, went to another studio called Rowan Co. Um, and then after that, went freelance and have been freelance now for around three years, a little over three years. Did you, during this time, did you have an interest in history? You know, it's it's not only that I came from science to design. I, I really was not someone who ever loved I mean, I love to read, but I, English and history were not my favorite classes. I think the early part of the history was that I, you know, because I was in this dual degree program where I was sort of one foot in a, you know, academic university and one foot in an art school, I always felt like I wasn't smart enough for, you know, the academic school and nor was I design savvy enough for design school. And I think very early on, one way I um, sort of got over that, maybe you would call it a form of imposter syndrome was trying to look at a lot of work that designers had done to say, okay, so if, you know, Paula Scher did centered type on a red poster. If I do centered type on a red poster, that's good design. <laughs> you know, it was a way to sort of look at proven design solutions that I knew had been out in the world and been received well, a sort of confirmation that it was, you know, a, a composition that would work. Um, and, and I think I would argue there probably was, without me realizing at the time, a bit of a scientific attitude to it. I, I was bringing sort of a research mindset to a design um, sort of practice in a way that maybe other designers were more likely to sort of look at their own internal wellspring. I was someone who said, you know, I'm starting a project and I feel very clueless and out of my depth. Let me just look at a lot of stuff. And then I think over time, as I started looking at more stuff, I realized, hey, this is pretty cool. <laughs> There's a lot of really cool things. And it's a lot more nuanced than I was giving it credit for. Um, and as I started looking at more stuff, I found more obscure stuff and I found more interesting archives of, you know, design solutions I hadn't even thought of, you know, postage stamps and brochures and, you know, the world of ephemera, which is so different than, you know, commercial poster design or um, brand identity. So yeah, kind of was self-perpetuating in that way. I sort of, I, it started as a solution for a problem, but it became in itself a real passion. Um, and then part of that passion began um, sharing it with people. And that also sort of bolstered getting to have conversations with people about archives was something that got me more interested being able to expose other designers or coworkers to this stuff. Um, so yeah, it all kind of just, it started really slowly. And then suddenly I blinked and I felt like I was the person people asked questions about archives to. Well, when, when did you feel like the casual archivist identity kind of came to form? Yeah. So casual archivist was I've been using that term as sort of a joke since college. My my thesis project, my degree project when I was at RISD was um, called a collection of collections. And that came out of the fact that I could not decide what to do my degree project about. So I did 15 different little mini projects, each one drawing from a specific archive of some kind for its work. So I had a, a movie that was different clips of people in... Um, films putting on makeup that I super cut into, you know, one person doing their whole face. I had a series of playing cards that were drawn from um, cigarette packaging, you know, all these little different projects. Um, and when I needed to label that 
project. I called it, you know, a collection of collections slash casual archivist because I was sort of laughing that it was very in contrast to the archives I, you know, would visit where it felt very formal and everything was arranged by, um, you know, whether that's Dewey Decimal or some other categorization system. I always just sort of pulled stuff I thought was interesting and mashed it together and then pulled it apart and put it together again in a very informal way. So I kind of felt like I was had a love of archives, but not the kind of training or rigor that an actual archivist has. Um, and then over time, I started sharing things that I would find on Instagram under the hashtag casual archivist, probably, you know, back in 2014. Um, and then eventually I started a newsletter. This was actually during the pandemic when all of the work dried up. So I started a newsletter just to keep myself busy. Um, and that ended up being something that I think um, helped the name kind of stick and formalize a bit, which, you know, then led to me sort of doing more um, freelance mood boarding and image research and just sort of having that moniker be the overall name for my practice of anything that relates to archives. I think it's interesting you mentioned like this, the creative side and kind of that archivist's approach to to organizing the material in a very formal way, kind of clashing in a lot of ways. And it's something that we've seen in our archive when we invite designers into our reading room, which is feels like a very sterile place in a lot of ways and, and very formal. And you approach the front desk and you say, I'd like to see these things. And then they go back into the locked, you know, climate controlled room and and bring you out an acid-free box with the materials and you can look at it, but you need to put your backpack away and food and, you know, pencil. And, and, and I know that has to exist for these materials to be preserved, but I will say, you know, you're touching on another thing that partly why I never changed the name, even now that I am technically a formally employed archivist to some extent is I really wanted it to be clear that archives are accessible to anyone. Yeah. And while sure, if you're a researcher and you have access through your university or a local organization to these archives, there's so many archives online. There are so many informal archives. I mean, you go to a flea market and you see some guy with a table of you know, a hundred Disney figurines, that that's an archive. That's a, that's a collection, you know, it just really depends on what you call it. Um, and especially with design being such a, um, I think sort of gate kept profession, just because so many art schools are private is you can learn a lot about graphic design, history, art history, all these things without having to necessarily go to a formal archive and, and be in that sort of elite class or gate kept class to access it. While, while our archive is is formal and that's that there's reasons for that. And, and um, there's, there's processes in place. I think some of those have been challenged in a lot of ways for us. Um, as soon as we created this collection of design materials from the outdoor industry and started inviting designers into the space, we realized that some things needed to change. We needed to be a little more comfortable with designers you know, spreading the materials out and not looking at one thing, like everything, like one at a time. Um, and so I, I think it's been interesting. These two worlds coming together in a lot of ways has has challenged us to think about archives a little differently. An archive slash library that um, really has been super impactful on me is um, the Prelinger Library in um, San Francisco. They, I believe, described their collection as a collection of visually and culturally rich material. So what I really appreciate is, A, they collect work that maybe is not necessarily um, in the highest condition, you know, perfectly preserved, you know, maybe not first editions even. They have a lot of photocopies and zines and things like that. Um, and work that might not be considered worth saving by a lot of archives, but they also organize their collection in a really intuitive 
sort of visually driven way. So you'll have, you know, different catalogs of biodiversity. They'll have trade papers. They'll have things organized by theme, you know, whether that's um, by like a aesthetic era or time period. And it allows for me, it was the first library I ever walked into where I felt like I could really um, just like pull things off and, and sort of assemble these sort of micro collections from what they had and be a little more intuitive with my searching. And I've only been there in person three times, but every time I go, I've never gone in even with a project in mind, but I'll sort of start carving out these weird niches where I remember last time I was there, I looked at a book about um, set design, but it had all these amazing diagrams from the forties for someone, if you were, you know, a set painter and, you know, just that feeling too, of like something that might inspire you to work on a graphic design project might have nothing to do with graphic design. Something that might be, you know, your inspiration for an outdoors product could come from, you know, a chemistry book that has amazing diagrams. (laughs) You know, so I think that kind of inverse, not search oriented, but more browsing oriented thing is a really nice um, kind of feature of these more eclectic libraries, whether they're organized formally or not. Well, you said the word browse. We should get into (laughs) the browsing versus search conversation. We were talking a little bit about this um, off air, but um, some people might see those as, as, you know, synonyms, but they're, they're very different in a lot of yeah. ways. How, how would you define browsing versus search as it relates to archives? Yeah. I mean, again, I, I said this one before we you know hit record, but I feel very strongly about the loss of browsing in the modern era. And for me, browsing is looking without knowing what you're looking for. And search is search is, is looking for something very particular. That's a very quick way of saying it. But um, to me, another way to say browsing is Browsing is happenstance and accidental. It's it's giving yourself a few constraints, but leaving a lot open. Um, and it's also, yeah, a little more intuitive search. Um, I think another good example of something I love is um, with browsing, even with a system like the Dewey Decimal System that isn't always helpful for someone looking for visually rich material, the number of times where I have found something because I was looking at um, atoms you know, and we were looking at Ansel Adams and then there's someone else whose last name is Adams who happens to also, you know, have a book about, I don't know, fashion. And it's just sorted there alphabetically. And you just pull it off the shelf because it has a cool yellow spine, (laughs) you know, just something that just speaks to you in this core way. And you pull it out and all of a sudden you found something you never would have known to look for. And I think the fact that the internet optimizes for, you know, the search you need to describe you have to know what you are looking for before you can even type it in. It's very, very difficult to find stuff that way. Um, and that's why I love, even on the internet, I always talk about sort of like, how can you create a system for yourself within the structure of a search-based internet that allows for browsing? My version of that is I save things that I love into one giant mega folder. And I don't, I intentionally don't really tag them so that when I'm starting a project, I can sort of look at it curated chaos collection of things I like and just browse and just look and see what pops out to me. It's almost like um, I have a friend who reads tarot cards <laughs> and the idea that, you know, you pull these cards randomly and then someone who's, you know, a mystic will, will tell you what that means about you and your day or your personality. And right. sure, it's sort of a placebo a little bit, but um, that idea that you can sort of, the power of randomness and the power of post hoc thinking can actually imbue these resources that maybe seemed unrelated into something that's a very strong foundation to make work or to think about a new idea. Well, you've touched on this a little bit, but um, 
I guess, more explicitly, what does your archive look like? Yeah. I mean, again, with the whole casual idea, um, I, well, A, I don't have the budget of a university to acquire things that are always in the best condition. Um, I actually have a really hard time. I go to a lot of antique and antiquarian book fairs and I struggle because I'll talk to book dealers and they say, well, what do you collect? It's like, well, sometimes cookbooks, sometimes outdoors stuff, sometimes sports, you know, and, and it really is just what speaks to me. So in terms of my physical collection, it's things that either I cannot find online. So I have to have the print version in order to sort of get the holistic um, piece. Sometimes it's just things that spoke to me or were affordable. I have a few micro collections. I have a lot of cookbooks. I've always found cookbooks to have great artwork and design. Um, I also do really like sports and, you know, outdoors related ephemera. Just, I find um, something about, maybe it's the distance from the field, but um, things are always very graphic and iconic, you know, like uniforms or balls and things like that. There's always like a lot of lines and arrows and interesting things. Um, so they have, yeah, I have the whole physical collection, which currently just exists. I just moved. So it's in boxes <laughs> spread out in my basement, but um, I do have a lot of digital um, archives. I would say I get a little, I've been online long enough. I'm 29 um, where I've had collections on websites that have the website has disappeared and the collection has disappeared. So I'm a strong believer in, even though my collection is digital, I own that collection. I don't aggregate it on, you know, a Pinterest or an arena or a Instagram likes. I always try to save a redundant copy to my own. I have a Google drive and a Dropbox and a uh, hard drive because I want redundancy. Um, but I have some, you know, I, I, I'm really into information architecture and I like to put stuff in some folders, but I don't know. I, I'm a really big fan of making a system that works for you. So my system, I have my, the broad scale is I have half my stuff broken into things that I just want to look at. And then the other half is things I want to use. So as someone who does a lot of work that involves like almost like collaging archival elements, you know, I just did a book recently that um, every chapter opener has a really unique border that speaks to the um, person being featured in that. And all of those are just pulled from various um, pieces I've scanned, some things I've got on Flickr, and those I'm sort of like utilizing versus things like just a really cool book cover that might be inspiring for a project. And, you know, there's some subcategories, but yeah, it's not, it's not meticulously tagged. It's not organized by color or year. It's usually organized by, you know, I have a folder of type and that includes both album covers, magazines, book covers, you know, anything that has type that I'm excited by. I don't really care if it's a different format. It's that what I loved about it was the type. You know, it's like finding ways to cluster it that speak to sort of what it made it fire in my brain. Right. Well, I, I think you gave a lecture. I'm not sure where it was, but there's a lecture that's recorded online and it's really great. I'll, I'll reference it in the in the show notes here for anyone who wants to watch that lecture. But I think you talk about archives as a pantry. Mm, yeah. Could you talk a little bit about like that and like their ingredients? And, you know, this is a metaphor that came to me and I, sometimes I feel like it's a little half-baked, but I keep using it because I can't come up with a better one. But um, I think one of the big problems with the way, at least someone who's worked in design studios is often inspiration is something you do after you start a project and with a really specific brief. So I'll say, you know, maybe a client has expressed that they want a brand identity to be inspired by the seventies and their brand is a food product and it's going to be in a can. So what a lot of times these studios or myself included used to do is you would go find pictures of things that were 1970s, maybe they were on cans, maybe they were food. And, and you sort of, you find the inspiration in response to a brief. Um, and in my experience, that's really hard. And the reason the comparison to a pantry comes in where 
I really love to cook. Um, and if you've ever stayed at an Airbnb that has a kitchen, it's a real pain to have to start a kitchen from scratch. You know, you want to make something as simple as pasta. You have to, you know, you're like, oh, do I have the pasta? Do I, if I want to make the homemade sauce, I need to have oil. I need to have tomatoes. I need to have garlic. It's really hard to kind of be exploratory. You have to, you have to buy so much stuff to just make something simple um, as opposed to, and then I think the comparison with the archive is if every time you're starting a project, you have to pull everything from scratch and you're pulling it in response to a specific recipe, you're probably going to end up with a really predictable dish. <laughs> you're going to end up with something that's very expected that follows the notes that's identical to what someone else could have created. Um, on the other hand, I find that if you have a well-stocked pantry and I'll, I guess I'll reverse engineer this into the ephemera analogy, but um, you know, maybe you want to make a pasta and you say, oh, but weird, I have zatar. What would happen if I threw some, you know, Middle Eastern seasoning into what is normally an Italian pasta. And maybe, you know, you can sort of be more playful. You can pull stuff as it speaks to you. You can try it. You can take it out again. And and with the archive side of that too, I think of it as if you have, if you pull inspiration all the time and sort it, and you just have it waiting there for you, when you start a project, you're never really starting with the blank page. You are pulling from a pure pre-curated selection of things you like, and you can be more playful. What happens if you, even if it's for a 1970s food product in a can, you know, throw an album cover in there, throw something in there you wouldn't expect to be sort of an inspiration point. And I think it just allows you to be more nimble and yeah, exploratory with your references. And and it's less scary to have to find them. You're not um, sort of beholden to the six things you identified. You have a whole sort of network of references you can build together to sort of create that foundation. I don't know if it's the right word, but it feels like like the work becomes a little more pure because it's what spoke to you initially yeah. without these constraints and influence of, you know, um, all the requirements for the project. So and I really feel that pure to me. Absolutely. And I think something I, I've had a lot of, whether that's students or other designers who say, oh, you know, I don't look at design. I think it's wrong to look at design because you're going to make derivative work. And I can't help but say, if you live in the contemporary world, you're encountering design, <laughs> whether you want to or not. If you're gonna, you're you can't help but be influenced by the things in your environment. I mean, that's why you think one cut of jeans looks dated and another looks cool. Um, what I feel is it's there. The question is how much are you paying attention to it and how much are you critiquing it and analyzing it? And in that way, too, I think having those networks allow you to be really thoughtful about your references to both analyze what is it about this piece that spoke to me? Is it the color? Is it the type? Is it the composition? And then also to think about it on a higher conceptual level. Why? does this make sense for this project? You know, if you're working, I had someone reach out to me recently who's working on a product for someone in Croatia. And they said, you know, I want to find Croatian design because I want to, you know, why bring a Western design canon to this project? And if you're able to have that pool of resources already, you're, I think you can create these really thoughtful, subtle networks that, you know, maybe no one else will ever see, but you sort of, it gives you, it gives things a reason to be. Um, and I actually think in that way too, I used to worry looking at references would make my work derivative, but in reality, the references I'm pulling are so different, yeah, than the next person's references that it's still through the filter of Elizabeth's aesthetics. It just is a filter of things I've pulled rather than things necessarily that I drew on a piece of paper. Well, this reminds me of our our conversation right before we started recording. Again, using all the good material before we <laughs> record, but um, we talked about AI, right? And like this idea, you you just said that you know if you're given a project and all the constraints and this is the we want it to be a food product on a can 70s you can put that into an ai tool and it'll spit out the image right? yeah. if you know what you want 
then like what why have a designer in that and and the thing that troubles me i mean i have a lot of thoughts about ai that may or may not be relevant to this show but as it relates to archives i think the two things that i always try to sort of share with people who haven't spent a lot of time in archives are our idea in 2023 of what the 1970s looks like is so limited it is a tiny little stripe in a tw- in arguably a 20 year period of what people might consider 70s aesthetics. I mean, that's another thing. The 70s aesthetic probably started in 65 and went through to, you know, 85 already. Um, but also, you know, people talk about the 70s like everyone is Milton Glaser or, you know, Pushpin. And what you see is tons of people were working in realism. People were working with, you know, woodblock printing. And there are a lot of typefaces. You know, the 70s also riff on Art Nouveau with neon colors. And so you could be looking, if you want to look at the 70s, you could actually look at you know, 1901 and MUCA. And I think when you rely on a computer that's filtered um, into the 70s by what they have, and again, I'm not an AI expert, but they are filtering data that exists on the internet. They're looking already at a narrow band and then they're narrowing it even further and giving you their version of a collage. I just don't personally find it. um, And I understand, you know, we're in a culture where we're optimizing for speed, we're optimizing for output, you know, thank you, capitalism. But I think there's, it's so much more, um, what, even the fact that these machines rely on scraping human output, why not just go look at the human output yourself? Um, instead of just having it recreate its idea of what that is to you. Um, and I think about that as someone who writes, as I said, with writing as well, which is, you know, there's this, I think these like chat GPT, this idea that, oh, if I want to write an essay about, you know, what's the difference between coffee and tea? You can tell it and it'll spit back almost a search engine result of that. But in reality, it's the writing that actually gives you the idea. You don't just have an essay in your head that you want, you are too lazy to transcribe on paper. You know, you go into these projects, writing, drawing, designing, clothing, whatever that is. And I really do believe so strongly that it's the process of making that teaches you what you were trying to make. And I think these AIs, are so optimized for final output that they remove the chance for accident. They remove the chance for discovery. How do you recommend people engage with archives? Or I mean, people who are completely unfamiliar with how to engage with with a collection. I I really liked how you 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 approach it from the perspective of like everything can be an archive, right? Someone at the farmer's market is building an archive. I think that opens up the world a lot more um, beyond, okay, more of that formal going to a university archive. There's value there, of course, but how would you recommend someone who really knows nothing about archives get into the space and and approach an archive? To me, um, I think it's about developing um, a personal methodology around collecting. um, And that can be really different from person to person. You know, I think that can allow for a range of budgets. It can around allow for a range of um, products or items you're collecting. I think it's really about finding um, a new way of sort of in, engaging with content. I think part of creating a good archive is about being critical, pulling things. I think it's a little bit of, what is it? Um, write drunk, edit sober. <laughs> the same is kind of true for archives. Collect without thought. You know, just if you like something, save it. If you put it on your computer, I don't even have to worry about sorting it. You throw it in a folder. I have a folder on my computer called to sort that has 6,000 items in it. You know, don't be so precious about thinking through every reason you need something. But I think it's about going back and being critical with yourself and thinking through why something spoke to you, how you might want to use use it, quote, you know, as in 
what about it might help you to create something if that's why you're collecting. But what, what I find so amazing about archives and, and everyone having their own personal archive is I actually taught a class a couple of years ago on an online platform called Hyperlink that was called Archiving as a Creative Practice. And it was an attempt to help people who are interested in archives to just start thinking about what their own archive could look like. And what I found so fascinating was some people came in and, you know, we had a watercolor painter who really wanted to find better references to use for her paintings. So she had a really tight set of inspiration where it was mostly looking at photography, mostly looking at illustration. But I find that as the project went on, she, you know, started looking maybe a little more macro photography or electron scanning microscopes and, you know, sort of broadening that view. But I also had someone come in who was a writer who was looking for, you know, a way to catalog notes of their own, just like quick sketches they'd done. And, you know, and then there were some designers and it was such a wide range and nobody's collection was the same. Um, and I think that's what made it really beautiful. And I probably didn't answer your question because my answer was, you asked, how do you get into archives? And the answer is like, however is easiest for you, I think is sort of the answer. Um, some of it is like, I, I have a spreadsheet, which I'm sure you can link to, which um, I have a big spreadsheet that's like an archive of archives. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always give that to people who want to get started because it's just, it can be a little intimidating to just start finding one, but you really can. We're at a point where you could search almost anything. If you're interested in motorcycles, you know, you look up motorcycle archive, go on Flickr and search, you know, motorcycle ad, you'll probably be able to find a lot of stuff. You know, we have more material than ever. It's just about, I think, getting off of the Instagram sometimes, getting off of the Twitters and and going to those sort of like primary sources on the internet or just going, you know, so many libraries, you go to almost most public libraries, librarians are amazing. You tell them you're looking for something. A lot of places can give you access to, you know, whether that's their rare book room or, you know, just sort of, I think it's just starting. That's the hard part. Not being afraid to just look at stuff and ask questions and save things and not really worry about whether or not it has a purpose. Do you think we're at like peak archives interest level right now? Or do you think this is something that ebbs and flows? I I think about, you know, Instagram does make it easy for you to build a page where you take pictures of your items and you share them. And other people I feel like are realizing, oh, well, I have things that I like to collect that I want to share. Like, where do you think we're at with that, you know, kind of a macro level? I mean, I think that's a really fascinating question that could be an entire hour of discussion because I think our culture in many, many ways, but specifically as it relates to visual culture, it's really bifurcated between a lot of this AI stuff and then also a return to heritage. You have sort of, you see a lot of companies that are rebranding to their logo from 30 years ago. I think there's this, especially, you know, whether that's a recession, post-pandemic, you know, these feelings of sort of ennui and anxiety, I think, causes people to look backwards. I also think we have cutting edge tech that we haven't had before. Um, I also think we're at like peak aesthetic subculture, you know, the idea that there's like, you know, oh, cottage core or, you know, vanilla girl or Aaliyah core, like all these cores, which I always laugh at that's what we've cohered around. But um, I think there's, there's sort of a like um, curation as a service and um, collection as identity is at a peak for sure. Like the way that people, you know, even the fact that I, the one thing that always amuses me is when people post a picture of their house and they tag every single brand like on their night shelf. And, and to me, that sort of is like, we're at a really curate, people are thinking of curation as identity 
in a really dramatic way. And to me, that's very linked to the drive towards interest in archives because archives are just the formalized historic version of that. So some of that interest in them, I do think is like a pushback against tech. It's part of a larger movement around aesthetic sort of bowerbird <laughs> collecting. Um, I think it will ebb and flow. I certainly think branding right now and visual culture is leaning a lot on retro. And I suspect that will bounce back. Then again, the 20 year trend cycle has always been true. So I don't know. I think it's, it's less that it'll go out of style than that the way in which we think about archives will shift. I mean, again, not to go into AI too much, but like the fact that the only reason AI can exist is because they're pulling from archives. So one could argue that's like just taking archives into a different sort of sphere. Um, I hope that people start to realize the value. And I do think people are realizing like, oh, hey, my clothes aren't made as nicely as the clothes in the past. Or, you know, paper actually lasts a lot longer than a memory card for a phone you can't use anymore. And I think realizing that sometimes these things are more stable and then their digital counterparts is another thing that I suspect as more tech becomes obsolete in the next 20, 30 years, people will appreciate the value of those physical archives more. But I also don't think archives are very well funded. So <laughs> I don't know how much um, future there is in this space. It's interesting when we talk to brands about their history and, and the, the collections that they may or may not have. Um, you know, it's it's funny talking to brands that started in the late 90s, early 2000s, because they didn't really have paper. They were, they were throwing off paper, rejecting it. Um, and in lieu of flash drives and CDs and... And, and now a lot of that media is like corrupted and yeah. there's nothing that we can do to preserve it um, versus brands that started, you know, in the seventies, fifties, you know, hundreds of years ago, the paper is still here. Yeah. If, if preserved correctly. One of my favorite archives is at the the digital collection at Hagley. I think it's, I don't actually remember, maybe Virginia, but um, they have a collection from Avon, the makeup company. Um, and what I find so amazing is I was born in the nineties. So, you know, this sounds obvious. I'm sure to a lot of people, but everything was on paper. I mean, every single thing, if they put out a message to their employees, just saying, Hey, you know, you get this holiday off. It was on paper. It was on a letterhead, <laughs> you know, yeah. every single thing had to be sort of designed. There was no neutral almost. Um, and as a result, the, just by looking at the history and whether that's Avon or, you know, I think there are a lot, there are obviously a lot of corporate archives that are great. Um, Sainsbury's uh, grocery store in the UK, another great one, but just looking at the history of one company over 80 years of paper, you see every single design trend that has existed. They go through, you know, mid-century modernism, they go through 70s, they have psychedelic stuff. Just because they there wasn't a neutral, they had to design something with it. You know, they're putting it out. An email has no, I mean, it's plain text. <laughs> you know, you can't really create something neutral with paper. Even just the quality of the paper tells you something about the period in which it was made. Um and uh, yeah, I think it's really, I know I worked at the Whitney briefly during the biennial and I remember hearing some conversations in the curators around too with this, um, as it relates to even just fine art from the eighties and nineties, you know, like Namjoon Peck, like working with televisions that are no longer accessible. You have to source them. Um, and I do, I do wonder if there's going to be this funny sort of dead period in human history when we look back in many years where this sort of this 30 years where we, we didn't yet have the cloud, but we didn't have, um, we were away from paper because it, yeah, it's hard. I don't know how that time really lives on. It's It lives on because of the weirdos who decided to keep the stuff and who have kept up with transferring from, you know, <laughs> eight track to DVD to flash drive or who saved every single Delia's catalog. Yeah. 
Can you, well, I, this has been something I've been thinking about a lot. It's the, the brand identity piece and, and the case for archives in maintaining and preserving a, a brand's identity over, over decades. In the outdoor industry, in a lot of ways, it seems like we're hitting that point where a lot of the 70s founders, what we kind of see as the modern outdoor yeah. era, the Yvonne Chouinard's of Patagonia and, you know, the North Face, those companies that came around in the 70s, those founders are aging. Yeah. Um, and they're starting to look at, okay, how do we preserve our history? Some have done a better job, you know, versus others. Patagonia has done an incredible job of having an archive and hiring a staff to do that work. Other companies, not so well. Maybe there was one person that had all that institutional knowledge and then they either pass away or retire. And then all of that leaves with them. And then that next generation doesn't have that affinity to the yeah. brand or the identity. And that's where you start to see, you know, diverging paths from there. Um, what, what is your case, I guess, for, I, I, there's a case right there inherently, but what's the business case? Last year, um, I saw this thing happen with uh, the designer, Anna, Anna Soy. Um, and she, there was someone who posted a, a vintage dealer had posted a picture of a dress. I also realized I've never said that name. I know it might be sweet. Um, but SUI, she, someone posted a vintage dealer posted a picture of them wearing a dress of hers. Um, I don't know. It was from maybe the eighties or nineties. And Anna responded and said, you know, we don't have this sample. We don't like, we don't have this, this dress anywhere in our company archive. And it would really mean a lot for us to have this sample. And that idea that like, you could create something and not even have it in your own collection. And I think it is sort of, I suspect she's not the only designer who's dealt with that um, if there wasn't that, you know, committed preservation. But I mean, the reason I think it's important for brands is that um, I really, I think this, the, the, yeah, the 20 year trend cycle has always existed, but I do think Gen Z specifically has shown, and I'm sort of a cusper, so I can't speak to anyone comfortably, but I'll try. Um, there is a real, for environmental reasons, um, for aesthetic reasons, for because it's more unique to have vintage clothing. I mean, Depop, for example, is just huge. My little sister is 15 and and you know buys more vintage than anything else. There's so much push towards vintage. I feel um, in the next generation, and I think some companies are able to you know actually sell archival pieces, but also being able to go into your own archives, I think, creates a narrative for consumers, that's really exciting. It allows you to authentically trap, tap into um, sort of cultural revolutions. So Y2K is very popular right now. Places like um, like Diesel is having a huge resurgence because they're just reissuing their own garments from 2001. And of course, they're finding ways to update it, but it feels much more authentic for them to create Y2K garments that were originally theirs than it would be for them to try to imagine what a Y2K garment would look like. Um, so I think if a brand has that heritage, it allows them, to, it's so much faster, more efficient, authentic for them to just keep that stuff around to keep almost when the time comes and it's cool again, they get to re-release it. Um, and folks that don't have that history, I think that's why other people's archives are important. But um, I don't know, I just think it's, it, it, these these things do always cycle and having it on hand is just a, a really easy way to sort of tap into it. Um so I guess that would be my answer. But I also just, I mean, my answer as an archivist is also like, it's important, damn it. <laughs> like, yeah. I can't tell you why, but I just think like, I just think this stuff, it, I mean, it is, it is expensive. It is difficult to maintain these things, to have a proper archive. But I, I mean, like, I feel in my gut, a sense of horror of like, well, but what if, what's the opposite? Is the opposite that we just don't have anything, you know, and, and each individual item, 
you know, is not necessarily the most special thing on earth, but I, I think like, this is, this, this, this is the matter of what makes up art history, <laughs> you know, like every little, every little thing that someone saves. Right. And is the only way to do it at the, at a company or corporate level to hire a position, it kind of seems like that's, that seems like the best way to ensure that something continues long-term yeah. versus kind of informal, someone does it because they're passionate about it. Yeah. And again, talking about digital technology, the number of companies I've worked at where they're like, oh, we can't reset that password because the person who owned it <laughs> no longer works here and it's tied to their cell phone. You know, So certainly I do think having a, you know, a person is good. I mean, when I worked at Pentagram, they maintained a physical archive and they've been around for 50 years this fall, I mean, this spring rather. And um, they maintain everything. They have a copy. They have proof, you know, the original proofs for different things. Um, Obviously, not every company has the bandwidth to hire a full-time archivist. So I certainly think, to me, it's less about needing a single person than just formalizing the process. If you are going to maintain a digital drive of photographs of all of your garments, just make sure that password is listed somebody somewhere and have a standard around. I mean, it's the same as any company mission, right? It's like you have to standardize the process to some extent. You have to be willing to put the time in. Maybe it can be spread amongst, you know, you want to do a environmental initiative at your office. It's the same kind of idea. You know, maybe you have a committee of six people who contributes and they meet once a month to decide how they're going to, you know, focus that archive. But um, I don't think it has to be expensive is what I mean. Um, But and in that sense, you don't have a climate controlled room to store everything. That's fine. Buy an acid free box at Stables, you know, yeah. or or even I, I and as I said, I'm hashtag the casual archivist. I buy stuff a lot of the times and then scan it and then give it away. I can't keep every book. I don't have the home space. I don't have the money um, to buy everything I want. You know, if you photograph things and then have to sell them, that's still better than having nothing. I think there's this idea of like, if I can't do it right, I'm not going to do it at all. And that just feels so futile. And of course, not true. Yeah. Or you can work with a university like us. And I do think there are a lot more. I'm not someone who's super familiar with grants, but you know, there, there are a lot of things I think there are actually, if anything, I would argue if you're a young person who's interested in this, the antiquarian community is so old. <laughs> so like, I mean, I don't think, I think there's a real desire for more young people to get into this trade or hobby. I go to these book fairs. I go to these, um, you know, I used to, before COVID, I used to go to the New York rare book fair and I, I was the only person under 25. And I was, at first I was thinking these people don't want to speak to me because I'm not here to buy you know, a $6,000 Bodoni specimen. But in reality, they were really excited to talk about what they had and to hear someone who was younger and interested in this. And I I really feel that archivists are frothing at the mouth to talk to more young people who are interested in this. Um, so I, I wouldn't be afraid to bring up the idea. And I mean, I don't want to force archivists to get a bunch of emails, but if you're working at a company and you want to start an archive, yeah, reach out to a local university librarian, reach out to someone from an archive that's a, a sort of sister topic of some kind. And I, I'm sure people would be willing to hop on even a 30 minute call to tell you how you might be able to sort of get started or who you could speak to. I think the good thing is archivists are so like me, passionate about preserving this stuff that they want to find ways to sort of um, foster it. Well, that's our university archivists um, perspective. I mean, whether material ends up coming here or we can help a brand preserve it at the end of the day it's it's safe and it's being protected somewhere we don't expect every outdoor brand to send us everything um and so at the end of the day you know we're we're happy to help other people get their archives set up i was gonna say the internet archive is another um great archive that does that as well where they'll sort of absorb 
absorb materials that are in um, distress, you know? Um, And, and I, I think again, like people are people who are in this world will find a way to help you. I think. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, I'm going to go back a little bit. We, we touched a little bit on the digital side and Instagram and people starting accounts where, where do you land you don't have to have a strong opinion about this. I don't know. We've only been talking for 45 minutes, but you may be able to tell. I have a strong opinion about almost everything. <laughs> well, in the outdoor space, there's a lot of curator accounts specifically for out, like outdoor vintage, outdoor archival imagery. Um, and these accounts just pull imagery. They're vibes accounts, right? Yeah. They just yeah. pull imagery from, from everywhere. And in a lot of cases, don't give credit. Where where do you- God, You know what? You know what haunts me? When people write source- Pinterest. (laughs) Like that's not a source. No, that's something source Google. (laughs) Yeah. How do you feel about accounts like that? And, and a number of these have incredible followings. I mean, like millions of followers and it's, it's all vibes. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, as I said, we're in like peak vibe culture, right? I mean, I think there was a, was it New York mag? Someone put an article out that was like the end of vibes because it's like, surely we've hit saturation and people are going to get sick of the idea of like a, of a curated set. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not one to begrudge much. Um, and I, I really think I don't have a problem with these existing. Sure. I wish they were a little more thoughtful about credit. I think it's more that what I don't like is those replacing platforms where there is a critical eye. I think it's really when you don't provide sources and when you don't provide any type of commentary, um, I think, visual culture doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's, it's much more compelling to have an understanding of, you know, a good example is um, I'm a big fan of the whole earth catalog as a sort of piece of graphic design history and ephemera and the whole earth catalog. I would almost call this like one of the earliest, like proto environmentalism um, publications, you know, before whole foods, if you wanted a composter, you could buy one from the whole earth catalog. Um, you know, and sort of in the same spirit as Ram Dass and, and all that stuff. But uh, what I really, I've seen them every once in a while get posted on the, the kind of accounts you're talking about. And to post a cover from the Whole Earth Catalog and not talk about how political they were as a publication and how it was printed and the group of people who put it together. And, you know, it has so much meat in it that's just getting missed by posting just the close up cover with the, you know, globe on it. Um it, to me, it's akin to like how many people use Photoshop and use the Dodge tool and don't know that that's something you can do on a photo in a photo development room. I think posting things without context and without, and, and context doesn't have to mean, you know, the entire history of this piece, but even some level of criticism. Um, and, and I don't mean criticism as in critical, but to uh, analysis. And that's something I really thought about when I started my newsletter, which was, I didn't want to be another person posting 30 photos that were just kind of cool. I wanted to really make sure that I was offering a perspective or a point of view that I felt wasn't found anywhere else. Whether that was, why why do I find these postage stamps so interesting? And I think curation is a skill, absolutely. I mean, God knows I've made my living on trying to convince people curation is a skill, but I do think um, the redundancy of these different accounts to each other, where it feels like you're just seeing the same 30 images bouncing between of them. And no one's really telling you more about who made it, why they made it, what it was used for, how it was made. Um, to me, that's not really going to actually inspire anybody. It's just sort of posting as posturing. Um, 
And I think that's where I struggle. And I follow a bunch of these and I like them, but um, I always find myself more moved when I, you know, it, it might be for me, it's a, it's a doorway. I find something I like on there. Most of the time I will try to then identify where it is from with more depth. And, and again, as someone who's been on the internet for most of my life, at least since the early 2000s, what I find amazing is there are certain images that I have seen pop up on like Tumblr and then on Twitter and then on Instagram and then on TikTok and then on Arena, same image. And it's just, they become these like contextless voids where you're like, it's like some woman, you know, with a red color gel on her. And you're like, where did this come from? And then you find out it's from, you know, a movie from the 1960s and you watch the movie and it's an amazing movie. And how much more meaningful would it have been to just watch that movie in the first place? We've, we've seen that firsthand with some of our materials. Um, you know, there's, there's one in particular, it's the, it's a Patagonia catalog. It's not a particularly old catalog either. Yep. Um, with a climber climbing a T-Rex statue <laughs> and that, that definitely made the rounds, um, and crossed over outside of, you know, the, out, you know, just our outdoor bubble. It was kind of yep. really interesting to see it bounce around just like you, you described, well, and I think a lot of it, the reason it matters to me, I think is archives aren't a neutral space. Somebody has decided what gets saved, what goes into an archive, what is, what is worth saving, you know? And when, especially when we talk about, I mean, again, I'm not an expert on the, on the uh, outdoors industry, but, you know, it, to look at a curation of, of an, a bunch of items. And especially when you have these accounts posting from each other, you're narrowing that stuff more and more and more. And you might say, Hey, like, weird that all of these are men or all, you know, white people. Is it that people, did they actually not make catalogs that featured people of color or were they simply not saved, you know, and having those contexts of what could that whole catalog look like looking at one page is going to tell you a really small story. And even if from a design perspective, looking at one page, that's not going to tell you about the type system. That's not going to tell you about the photography. Um, it's a really, really narrow band of, of inspiration. And again, it's just vibes. It's, it's vibes. <laughs> right. It's vibes. That's that can just be the name of this episode. Yeah. It's just it's vibes. Like the I don't know, the sort of taxonomies become really flattened. Yeah. Also, yeah, to just curate stuff that's like, what does it even and what does it even mean to curate a collection of outdoor recreation materials? As you said, like does that include that includes just obviously not just the catalogs. That could include everything across a wide range of disciplines, across a wide range of formats, you know, letters, notes, all these things, like where you might find that inspiration. I think where I struggle too is a lot of these are posting like like film stills it's like film stills are beautiful but watch the film <laughs> yeah right right yeah well we wrestle with that because our collection is much more than catalogs and um you know but but we just haven't scanned any of the other materials yeah. because our incentive is oh well the visually engaging material is is what gets gets traction and builds the collection but but yeah. we should probably resist that impulse right for years i've had this um sort of funny idea. And I mean, it's not that I, my collection is that significant or anything, but I have this collection. I, I, I'm definitely a digital hoarder in that I just save stuff I like, as I said, and my pantry is now, you know, the size of a house. And I have all the stuff that I feel like, and I use the word use in quotes, but that I'm never going to use, you know, I've saved it with no particular focus in mind. And I almost feel like I need to I'm hesitant to make my personal archive public because I find that I don't trust corporations and I would love to make my archive public to other artists, but I don't want to make my archive public just so, you know, Coca-Cola doesn't have to pay someone to find references for them. 
But I would love to see, for example, you know, I'm looking at my collection as a graphic designer. What would happen if I gave my collection access to my collection to a makeup artist? You know, they might see something completely different. I saved this because I liked the background. They might say, oh, like I haven't seen that kind of cat eye before, you know? And what happens if I give my collection to, you know, someone studying queer history? What happens if I give my collection to somebody who's a product designer? You know, and all of these things are going to, even within one collection. And that's why also I, I'm really anti of the scarcity mindset and people don't share references because someone's, no one is going to see the same thing in the reference that I see. Um, and, and in that way, I, I do think it is kind of a, yeah, just a funny, a funny issue. Well, I, we could go on for a whole nother <laughs> hour. I, I think we could do a part two as well. Um, but I, I want to be conscious of your time. Where What's the future of your work? I mean, kind of, you've talked about, you are doing work with brands specifically yeah. pulling from your hit, your, your, your history and experience with archives and with design. Um, what does your work look like currently and what's the future of your work and your work with archives? Yeah. Great question. It's, I mean, most of, I would say 90% of my income just comes from being a practicing graphic designer who, you know, makes works work that has nothing really to do with archives on the surface, you know, brand identities, art direction. I would say on the back end, archives are, you know, like the lifeblood of my work. I'm always looking at archives when I start new projects. I'm bringing that or those archival references to my work and trying to be thoughtful and um, sort of innovative about the different ways that that archival work informs my process. But it's not very, it's honestly visible to the client. It's something that is just sort of this backend feature. Um, I, you know, I, I really, I hope that through teaching, I'll be able to you know, sort of Trojan horse, some of my thoughts about archives, even though I'm not teaching classes that are explicitly related to archives. Um, it's funny, you know, I always, you know, I'm a freelancer and trying to make a living. And some part of me always thinks like I could probably monetize some of my archiving a little more, but in another way, it feels very um, antithetical to the spirit of by which I like to work on it. So mostly my archival practice exists in the, you know, dozens of DMs I get from people who say, hey, do you know where I could find images of San Francisco bathhouse advertisements, you know, or whatever thing someone is looking for, for a project. And sure, I'd love to, I, I occasionally work with companies who are looking for archival content in a niche way to inform a project who I do work with on a, you know, paid basis. And I would really love to do more of that because I find it super exciting. But, um, you know, I, again, as I said, I think it's in the landscape we have, it's hard sometimes to convince people that that is worth the value. Um, I think a lot of people feel like, oh, the inspiration is everywhere. I can it's why should I hire someone to source it for me if it's, you know, I can just Google it. Well, of course, we all know that's not totally the same process. But yeah, I mean, my my long-term hope is to just continue to get other people excited about this, see what they find. I, I've been really lucky through posting about my archiving pursuits to connect with other people, yourself included, who are just passionate about this and and see where we align and what they can expose me to. But um, if my, if the end result is more people are looking at this and more people are thinking about this to me, that would be success. Um, but if I can get paid for it too, that would also be nice. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, is the newsletter the best way to engage with you? And it's yes, I haven't sent one out in a few months, okay. but uh, it's coming. Um, I also will say I am, you know, um, I do also have, I, I, I'm trying to do more work also the sort of personal work that explicitly relates to archives. So for example, I have a zine, um, coming out in February on Valentine's Day. That's a um, archival 
collection of um, lettering from romantic pulp novels. So that has sort of like an essay that it talks a little bit about the history of these things and then has a lot of the lettering and book covers featured. So, you know, trying to find a few places like that. Um, but yes, my newsletter is casualarchivist.com, which is, you know, I'll send it out. I promise. Maybe this will be the reason I finally get it together. Um, and then also, yeah, I'm just, I, I post a lot of um, thoughts about archives and, and sort of visual trends and aesthetic culture on my Twitter and Instagram as well, which are, I'm sure you can put that in the show notes because I don't want to have to say it out loud. <laughs> we, we can do all that. Yep. We'll include it all in the show notes. So I'm very online. You can find me almost everywhere. <laughs> well, this has been awesome. Um, and it's fun to talk to someone who's I just as, you know, as kindred spirit. As well, kindred spirit. <laughs> um, and I feel like I'm running into more and more people who are passionate about this space and it's, and it's fun to, fun to have these conversations. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm sure we can do a second one at some point. Yes. I'd love to have a second one to talk more about also, I feel like I have a, I have a lot of thoughts unsurprising about um specifically the trends uh, within the outdoor space and how, you know, like Gorp core <laughs> to do another core has crossed into the mainstream in the way in which we sort of have this funny trickle down of like, you know, I actually, I saw some tweet that was like, why are the, the 20 year olds fa- most loved brands are like North face, <laughs> you know? And uh, why is it that they're all dressing like 80 year olds? So uh, half baked, but a lot of thoughts on that for sure. Well, let's, let's work on that one. I, yeah. I there's, there's a lot of material there for us to work with. So, yeah, yeah. okay. Well, we'll wrap this one here. Thanks for listening to the Highlander podcast. For more conversations with outdoor leaders, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts, watch episodes on the Outdoor Product Design and Development YouTube channel, or on opdd.usu.edu slash podcast. Follow along on Instagram at USU Outdoor Product and let us know how you're enjoying the show.